why do bad things happen to good people? Which is everybody's favorite question. It's, and if I'm going to try to give you a, com- a complete, thorough uh, look at this, then we're going to be here for a while. You guys all packed lunches, right? You're good. And you packed dinners as well, I'm assuming. Um, no, it's, it's funny because we ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? But we don't really wrestle with the question very much, why do bad things happen to bad people? We're kind of okay with that one, right? Like, it, uh, it's not, not, as, not as, as big of a deal. In fact, there's this whole genre of, of videos online, um, you can find them all over YouTube, uh, that are called Instant Karma. Has anybody ever watched like an instant karma video? Here's, here's just a, a brief description. Karma is the Hindu belief that the universe is repaying us back for our intentions. So if we do something good, the universe is going to give us good things. And if we do something bad, the universe is going to give us bad things. And so these instant karma videos are like 30 seconds to a minute long clips where uh, you see somebody doing something bad. And then immediately, something bad happens to them. It's like, boom, instant karma. just slaps you in the face. Uh, for one example that went viral is there was a, a lady in a minivan who was being tailgated by a, a truck driver, uh, a pickup truck. And so she you know, does what we all do now, and she starts recording it, of course, because she's a safe driver. But anyway, so this, this truck gets like right up behind her and is, is as close as he can, he can be without causing an accident. And then he swerves to the side of her, and when they get window to window... He decides to uh, to tell her what uh, his show her what his favorite finger is. Um, also happens to be the tallest one he has. So it's just this is my biggest, uh, this is best, right? So, anyways, shows shows him or show, shows the minivan driver um, the finger and then swerves and cuts in front of her. But he cuts too hard and so he starts to uh, go off off one side so he overcorrects and goes the other way and then he overcorrects that way and goes the other and ends up spinning around and running into a tree so uh, it wasn't like a, a, a anybody got hurt injury but it's, it hurt his wallet i'm sure and it hurt his pride because it's all over the internet now and so it's kind of like like uh, you are a rude driver flip people off cut people off you hit a tree like that's instant karma all right one of, my, one of my favorite videos, though, was uh, there is a, a purse snatcher who uh, was attempting to steal a handbag off of a uh, stroller that was coming out of a, a gas station bathroom. So that's a perfect setup, right? So it's all caught on security camera. This lady put, is, is trying to get her car, her little baby out of, out of this bathroom, and the purse snatcher just like, tries to nonchalantly just grab this bag. But what he didn't realize is that the mother he was attempting to rob was trained in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> so the security video shows her dragging him to the ground and getting him in a chokehold until somebody could come. And I was like, I was like that, that's terrible. What's worse, see, I would understand, this is, it's worse for me, I would understand, like, you wait until the police gets there, but she, she holds him and waits until the, the gas station attendant comes over, and he, like, hands the purse to him, like, he's gonna save me, and then, then as soon as he hands the purse away, she lets him go, and they just let him walk out, like, walk of shame completely, like, it's not even, not even like the cops got you, but it's, you attempt to raw, steal a purse, you get choked out by a woman half your size, instant karma, right? Like that's, yeah, and so <laughs> it's, so, it's funny because we can, we can talk about, you know, while none of us should be proponents of, uh, of, of getting in car accidents or beating people up in gas stations, um, 
We, can, we talk about these things, we smile, we laugh, we even cheer about them because we just, uh, there's something inside of us that likes seeing people get what they deserve. That, that, that's, that's kind of, that's something in, inside. That's why we can watch these videos. We don't, we don't squirm when bad things happen because we, we like seeing what people get what they deserve. And so first I need to throw out a disclaimer um, before we get a bunch of uh, comment cards uh, talking, talking about the children's pastor. Um, I need to let you know that I am in no way endorsing Hinduism. <laughs> I am in no way endorsing karma. The Bible does not teach us through the scope of Scripture that the universe is repaying our good for good and our bad for bad. Another, uh, the bigger um, portion of what the, the belief in karma is, is that we are the sum of our good actions or the sum of our bad actions. And Scripture does not teach that. Uh, we do not believe that karma is real, but we do believe that justice is real. See, justice is that um, is our belief in what's fair and what's not fair. And so no matter what we believe about God, I think most of us understand that we do have this sense of justice. It was given to us. It was something that I believe is a signpost that's pointing to, uh, to our creator, that we serve a just God who cares about justice. So he, when making each one of us, put that innately in us. We like to see wrongdoers pay for their wrongs. We have that same, that same sense of justice likes us, uh, helps us to see um, that we like to see good people receive good things. Like, if you are in a competition and you get second place, it's really important to you who gets first place, right? Because if, if you get second place and it's like your arch rival gets first place, it's like you can't wait until next year until you can, you can win, right? Now, if, if you get second place and your best friend gets first place, then what do we say? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they won. Like, it's, so, it's not, and we're not glad that, and the first service, people were like, mm-mm, nope, <laughs> like, not me, okay. Um, well, most of us, a lot of us, we can, we can handle that. It's easier to swallow because we like, not because we didn't want to win or because we didn't want the prize, but because we like seeing good things happen to people that we like, and we don't like seeing good things happen to people that we don't like. Um, when, when it comes to God, we want to see people who have big faith be rewarded with big miracles. We want to see people who are doing what we perceive as evil to be, um, to be punished with some sort of punishment. We want, we want to see that. We want to see that that justice play out uh, in front of us. So there's an example. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to 1 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. This is a story of the prophet Elijah, who I like Elijah so much, I named my son after him, that uh, coming, find, he, he is out of the, the, uh, the nation of Israel. He is, he is uh, with uh, uh, another uh, in another country, and um, there's in the midst of a famine that lasted three years. So here's here's the story from First Kings seventeen eight through sixteen. Then the Lord said to Elijah, "Go and live in the village of Zarephath." Everyone say Zarephath. God bless you. Near the city of Sidon, I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So Elijah went to Zarephath. As he arrived the gates, at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water and a cup? As she was going to get it, he called out to her, Bring me a bite of bread, too. But she said, 
I swear to you by the Lord, your God, I do not have a single piece of bread in my house. We only have a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of a jug. And I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal. And then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go ahead and do what you have just said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rains and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said. And she and, she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. And the, in, the justice inside us goes, yes, someone with great faith. A miracle happened, and they were provided for. These are the stories that we like to see. Somebody was at the end of their rope. That she's, she's poor. She's uh, a starving widow who has no other way to um, make uh, to, to, to make food, to, to feed her family. She's literally out gathering sticks to make a fire to cook her last meal before she's resigned herself and her family to death by starvation. I mean, it is, she is at a loss for hope. She has left less hope in her heart than she has flour in her jar. That's the situation we see Elijah coming into and God doing a miracle because this woman had faith. Like, it takes a lot of faith to use the last of your food and give it to somebody else, right? Especially someone that you don't know. You know they're, they're a prophet following a God that actually isn't your country's God. Um, that's not the, the, the people of Zarephath. We're not followers of Yahweh, which is the God of the Israelites. They had their own idols, their own whatever. But so she had faith in, maybe for the first time in her life, she had faith in the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is the God that we serve today. Um, and it paid dividends and good things happened to someone who had huge, huge faith It's an amazing story um, of faith being rewarded. And actually, it was such a good story that we're talking about it thousands of years later. And Jesus even referenced this story when he was talking to a crowd. He was in his hometown, and um, people were trying to get him to do a miracle. And um, anyways, in kind of one of his his analogies, he, he says this to the crowd. He said, I assure you, there are many widows in Israel. Uh, There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. See, Jesus was telling a crowd that God doesn't always act in ways we expect him to. Because if there's going to, Jesus said there are starving widows in Israel, and if God, the God of Israel, is going to care for a, for a widow in the midst of a famine, we would think that he would care for one of the Israelite widows, but instead, God sent Elijah to a different widow in a different country. So that's, that's one story. Here, here's another story. It's from Daniel chapter 3. Uh, you've prob- if you've grown up in the church or spent any time in the church, you've heard this one before. Or if you have a kid in our kindergarten ministry, you've received coloring pages of this one before. Um, it's a story of three, about three Israelite princes who were kidnapped by the Babylonian Empire. And the king of Babylon um, asked them to bow down to an idol. They refused to bow down to an idol. And so he said he was going to execute them by throwing them in a fiery furnace. And this, 
Uh, this story, you probably know that the three guys were named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's, or you can call them by their Babylonian names, which are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That's, that sounds more familiar. I was calling them by their good Jewish names. Um, the king of Babylon, see, Nebuchadnezzar, threatened to kill these men with fire in a blazing furnace. And this is how they replied, they replied as respectfully as possible to the king who was threatening their lives. He said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And the rest is history. The king threw them into the fire. Everyone expected them to die, so they had a servant peek in. And instead of three people roasting in there, and they, there were now four people. God sent some, somebody. There was a fourth, a fourth man in the fire. So they opened the door, and they came out, original recipe instead of extra crispy. And everybody was so excited that, that, uh, that these people were alive, and they had experienced this powerful God who saved them from being burned to death. I recommend, it's, it's an amazing story. Again, Daniel 3, I recommend reading it. Uh, but again, we rejoice and we teach our kids that these big, these, uh, these, these big names in Scripture, they had a huge faith and God showed up in miraculous ways in their life. And it is such, and that's something we'll continue to teach our kids because it's so true that God can do amazing things when we have faith. But at the same time, if you read their response again, you'll notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, had uh, faith that God could save them, but wasn't 100% sure that it was going to work out in their favor. What they said was that God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will never serve your gods. But even if he doesn't, the God can, but he might not. God is able But even if he doesn't, he's still the one for us. All right, we got two from the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. And this is is, uh, just an overview from from Paul's story in the book of Acts. Uh, The Apostle Paul, whose original name was Saul, I'm all about changing people's names now, Uh, he was the the greatest evangelist of all time. Like, uh, you could be a Billy Graham fan, and I'm going to let you finish, but Paul was the greatest evangelist of all time. All right. And Paul didn't start on fire for God. He didn't start on, fi- on fire for Jesus. In fact, he started and he was like a blazing furnace against Jesus. He was persecuting Christians. He was finding them, ex- uh, exposing people as Christians and having them executed. In fact, the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen, was, was killed, executed in the public square by people throwing rocks at him until he died, which is not one of the best ways to go. Um, and Standing, the Bible says, standing a few feet away was a young man named Saul, who is the Paul that we read about today, the Paul that became the greatest evangelist of all time. And so Paul had, um, a, had a, a, an order from the Jewish leaders at the time to go to a city called Damascus and uh, make, uh, make the case against Jesus there and even find Jesus' followers, these heretics, these followers of a false prophet, and make them pay for the rebellion against God because they followed Jesus and not the true God of Israel. That's what, that's what Paul believed at the time. 
on his way to Damascus, he had a road to Damascus moment. The first, first one ever. And where, where Jesus appeared to him, it was like a flash of light. I like to think of it as like a lightning bolt. Like, poof. Jesus appeared, said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He convicted him to his heart to change his ways. And Paul was blinded for a few days, and God healed him from this, from this blindness. And ever since then, he was a warrior for Jesus Christ. He was a, a church planter. He went and preached the good news of Jesus to the whole world. And he started a bunch of churches, actually wrote most of the New Testament as letters to the churches he started. And so you think like, yes, this is awesome. God's doing this really cool work. But there are other people in that story who kind of get left out. Like, Paul wasn't traveling on his own, so what about his entourage? Like, his posse that was around him, who, like, they all saw this, like, this flash of light, but Jesus only spoke to Paul. None of these other guys knew, and we have no evidence that they made any kind of conversion in their life. We don't know that if Jesus spoke to them and if they turned and did what Paul was doing and followed his lead, or if they went back and, and said, whoa, Paul has changed his mind, he went kind of crazy, right? We don't know what happens. And then even more, we've got Stephen over here who is just stoned for preaching the good news of, of Jesus to the world, something that Paul would do later and get beat up millions of, uh, hundreds of times probably and thrown in jail a few times as well. But Stephen at the time was stoned to death. And so where he is someone who has, is having a huge story of faith in Scripture, but things didn't end out the way it ended for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Things didn't end for Stephen the way that it ended with the widow who had no food and no flour. See, if we were writing this story, our sense of justice says that, that Stephen, as people picked up their rocks, they began to throw it, and as soon as the rock, first rock left, the first person's hand, a force field bubble popped up around Stephen. And the rocks started bouncing off and pelting the people who threw it, and it was just this big act of vengeance. And, and, uh, and, and so then Stephen rises in the air in his bubble and starts preaching the good news, and everybody becomes believers in Jesus. That's the story that we write, right? Like, gee, that's the one that we write. Or, or, or that Paul is, uh, is, is riding to Damascus on his way to kill Christians, and there's a big old earthquake, and the ground splits underneath him, and he and his whole entourage who are trying to kill Christians fall into the center of the earth, like bad people doing bad things, getting bad done to them, and we want good things happening to the good people, but that's not how scripture played out. Um, that's not how, how things play out, and honestly, we don't need stories from the Bible to tell us that bad things happen to good people, Right? I mean, we live it every day. We live it. We have kids who get sick with illnesses that we have no idea why it happened. Or we get um, so disheartened trying to put back the pieces of a shattered relationship that we don't feel like we'll ever make it. Or our... Um, or we, we see somebody else who we don't want to be succeeding, succeed. That one's good. That, one, that one's tough, right? Like, why, not just why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? That one's a tough one to deal with, too. Like, why does the, that person get the promotion? Why has he become the CEO? Why did the enemies win the battle? Or this one will hit close to home. Why did the cheaters win the Super Bowl? 
said, I've, I've, said too, I've said too much. I've said too much. And I'm going to get in trouble. I, I wish, I'm going to comment card about that. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you that you're going to leave here today and uh, have some definite answer to why these things happen. But I, I can't give you that guarantee. I can't give you that promise. I mean, people have been giving arguments for the problem of evil since the beginning of philosophy. I mean, some say that um, you have to have bad to be able to see and appreciate the good. You need that contrast in your life. But sometimes the bad is so bad that you never get over it, and that's, that's tough. Um, others say that the bad is just a small blip on the overall good of creation and that in the, mas- in the master's um, grand work that we can, we can zoom up on, on a, a, a blotch that looks like a blotch, but when we zoom back out, we see why it is a part of this masterpiece. And that's, uh, I understand that, that as well. Um, the argument that most aligns with what I believe that Scripture tells us is that God teaches us how to drive and gives us the keys to the car, but lets us drive it however we want. Um, and sometimes he'll, he'll intervene, but it's more, more often than not, he'll let us drive it however we want. And when there's millions, billions of autonomous drivers, people are going to speed. People are going to swerve in front of you. They're going to overcorrect. They're going to spin out, and they're going to cause some accidents. And uh, again, even the best understandings of why these things happen, um, they really don't suffice during the time when we're actually asking this question. What I mean is, when are we actually saying, why does God let bad things happen to good people? It's when we're in pain, right? That's the time that we ask this question. It's when we're in trauma. It's when life sucker punches us. It's when we're, we're down to our last meal. It's when the bank account hits double zeros. It's when we don't know if these relationship pieces will ever fit back together the way that they were. Why? Why, God, why? That's, that's the time that we ask. And, and our, our focus is, um, one, of, one of the problems I see is that we don't like a God that doesn't fit into our box of how God is supposed to look. There's this type of worldview, I know that Pastor Craig has talked about this before, it's called therapeutic moral deism. It's, it's a, a belief system, and here's just like a very, it's a, a, a very shallow explanation of, of some of the concepts, but it's a worldview that, that there's a God who exists and is able to help us make things better in our lives. Like there's a God who, we don't really need to talk about him a whole lot when things are going good, uh, but if we, things are going bad, then we can ask him for things. It's sort of this cosmic genie that if we just rub the lamp for a little bit, then God will pop out and grant you three wishes, you know? It's, it's uh, an idea, a concept that, um, that is so, so specific. And then as soon as we experience problems or someone that we like suffers or dies, it all falls apart and we reject it. That wasn't real. That God isn't real. And we're not rejecting, the thing is we're not rejecting the true God we're rejecting a false image of a god as a genie or a bubble or a shield that is broken or popped or fallen apart. That's the kind of, the kind of god that we're, we're talking about. That, that god that, uh, that only comes about when we say, um, I will serve the god who performs best for me. So here's, here's a question. This is one to wrestle with. This is one to think about. If you knew that God wasn't going to make you invincible, would you still trust him? If you knew that God wasn't going to take away all your pain and suffering, 
in this life, would you still love him? So as I, as I wrestled with this question, I was reminded about a philosophical theory about swans, because I'm weird. And I did my undergraduate work in philosophy because I really like wasting money. And, and so we, that's what we just talked. I mean, and, and as a philosophy, uh, with my philosophy degree, I learned to talk about swans and archery and whether or not we are just brains in a jar that are, people are, some robots are pumping, like, uh, memories into that are all fake. And it's like, we're really the matrix. This is amazing. So... Um, Ladies, if, if your guys, if, if your, your husbands or boyfriends or whatever just go hang out with other guys, this is actually what we talk about. We're like, man, over, over wings, it's like, what if we're all just brains in jars? Like, that's, that's what we talk about at B-dubs. We don't really care about sports. It's all about brains in jars. But anyways, back to swans. Um, so there's the theory at the time. Hundreds of years ago, they had, nobody had ever seen um, a swan that was not white. All swans were white. And so... So there is a theory of, of probability that said nobody has ever seen a, a black swan. And based on all of the evidence that we have, nobody has seen a black swan. So we can reasonably, scientifically believe that black swans do not exist. And this was kind of an accepted um, mind problem um, that people were cool with until some explorers in Australia found, hey, a black swan, that's cool. Look at that. Like, what is that? Get struck by lightning? Like, that's the extra crispy version. But they have, we have, they, they found a, a, a swan with, with black feathers, and then this whole theory got blown up. It said, even though that 99% of people who said, said they had never seen a swan, or had never seen a black swan, didn't change the fact that black swan existed. And just because people didn't believe that black swans existed didn't affect the swan's uh, feather color. So it's, it's uh, kind of like this. Here's, here's another way of putting it. If you believe that I have a three-foot vertical jump, that does not give me a three-foot vertical jump. That does not mean that I can dunk a basketball, no matter what high school version of me said. That, I'm not going to jump for you. I have nothing to prove. And, uh, um, but just because you believe, believe that I can jump three feet in the air doesn't, mean, doesn't affect my jumping abilities or leg muscles. Right? And you also can't say, I only believe in a John Miller who has a three-foot vertical and no other John Miller exists, and then I'd be gone. Right? Like that's, my brothers would have used that so fast, it would have not, not been a, a deal. I wouldn't be here. So luckily for me, you can't do that. Your opinions about, unluckily for me, your opinions about how high I can jump don't affect me either. Um, but our, it's like this, our belief are not in God, uh, in a God that allows suffering and pain doesn't actually affect God any. It doesn't make him non-existent. It doesn't change his nature. Our beliefs about him doesn't change his love for us either. And lucky for us, it doesn't change his promises. So you won't leave here with a way to explain away your pain, but we are going to point to the one who someday said, I will take away all of your pain, that someday every tear will dry. There will be no more pain. There will be no more shame. There will be no more suffering. And in our moments, we will no longer have moments where we say, where are you, God? Because the I am will be right there and say, I am with you. Amen. 
God hasn't given up on us because there's suffering and pain in our world. God hears our prayers. He feels our pain. God has a future for us. Um, We know a God, our faith knows a God who came into flesh and suffered alongside us and took on our sin, our shame onto himself and died for our sins, for our failures, for the times when we've swerved and caused accidents. And even more so, Jesus' death and resurrection is ushers into existence a new kingdom. The kingdom that God was talking about is at works. It's being built. It's blooming all over the world. And it started at the inauguration of King Jesus. King Jesus is king. Jesus is our president. Jesus is in control. And so we have the opportunity to live now, even in our brokenness, even in our pain, even in our suffering, as citizens of this heavenly kingdom. More on that later. But uh, one thing, one verse that you've probably heard over and over again is uh, you probably claimed it over your whole life, you probably got it like um, tattooed on your arm, is Jeremiah 29, 11. All right, who has tattoos on? No, don't really. Um, just saw someone like, no, no, I won't. I'm not going to. All right, Jeremiah 29, 11. We'll throw it up on the screen. Here's what it says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Those words are hopeful, they're inspiring, and they're intended to be. That's what they were written for. Uh, A little background, the prophet Jeremiah lived around uh, 500, 600 B.C., and he was writing to the people of Judah. It's it's, uh, the Israelites, there are 12 tribes of Israel based on the 12 sons of Jacob, each one flowing from a different from a different son. Well, there was a dispute after Solomon died over who could be who would be the king. So there was a split. Ten of the tribes appointed one king, and they called themselves Israel because it was the majority of them. The other two tribes that split off appointed a different king, and it was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they they uh, called themselves Judah. So you had Israel and Judah; they were all Israelites. But during this time, the kingdom of Assyria had come and taken over most of the land, uh, most of civilization. They hadn't got to Judah yet, but they had taken over the ten tribes of Israel. But as as Assyria was was gaining ground, another more powerful kingdom took over. That's the kingdom of Babylon. We've already talked about them before. But the Babylonians took over Assyria. They took over Judah. And so the people of Israel were in Slavery, they were in persecution. They were not in their own hometown. They were ruled by people who were foreign to them and had foreign gods, and they had to try to stay within their lane and stay true to the God who brought them out of slavery um, from Egypt. And so the people are getting ready to rebel. They're getting ready to, to do all of these, uh, these things to make it so that we can restore God's kingdom. And that's when Jeremiah comes in and talks to them and says, actually, guys, you're going to be here for a while. If you try to rebel, it's not going to work. That's not God's plan for you. Now, God has a plan for you, and it's not a plan to harm you. It's not a plan for disaster. It's a plan to prosper you. It's a plan of hope. It's a plan of future. And this was a tough truth to hear as an Israelite because for so long they had been saying, soon and very soon we are going to take over. Soon and very soon, God is going to rescue us from this oppression. Soon and very soon, we are going to be free to live in our own land with our own people ruling us. But soon and very soon came and went, and people grew older, and they passed away, and a new generation came forth, 
And it, it start, they started to question God's love for them because they had seen so much tragedy in their lives, so much oppression. And into these people, Jeremiah says, God's got a plan for you, for a hope, and for a future. And you might not see it this year. You might not see it this decade. You might not see it anytime soon. In fact, your, your ancestors passed away before seeing it come to fulfillment, but God has this bigger plan for us. And God's priority isn't our comfort. God's priority isn't pain-free lives. But God's priority is his plan for his kingdom. So Jeremiah 29, 11 was written to people in slavery. And maybe we're not oppressed like this, but we are oppressed. Whether we're spiritually oppressed, you could have a heavy heart right now. We're emotionally oppressed. Sometimes we are even physically oppressed. Like we have, we have burdens on us that, that are often too heavy for us to bear. And the Bible tells us that, that uh, it's not going to be a rosy life for us. In fact, 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 say, uh, So be truly glad that there is a wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, when your faith remains strong through trials, it will bring you much, much praise and glory and honor when the day of Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So Paul points people to this future. Acknowledge the present. Whether the pain in the present, grieve. Grieving is important. Grieve well. But when we struggle, we have to rely on God. It's kind of like, okay, in those cartoons, especially like the Sylvester and, and Tweety Bird ones, like when the, the cat is about to like fall out of a building or off of a cliff or off of like a, a, a clothes wire, because apparently that's where cats hang out in cartoons. Um, but then right before, every, every part of them is dangling underneath this wire except for their toes, right? They've got these superhuman cat toes that grab on and hold them from falling into, I'm assuming, traffic. I don't know what you fall off of a clothes wire into. But, and then Tweety Bird's kind of a jerk and flies over and takes you know, one toe off. But, but um, what did you learn in church today? That we're all brains in jars and Tweety Bird's a jerk. That's what you got, you got going. But that kind of, that kind of faith that, hold, that holds on with everything in it, that's the kind of faith that we need sometimes when everything is, seems to be crumbling around us. When the earth is splitting open, we need those, the, the faith that clings to Jesus when everything else is gone. A faith that holds tight when there seems like there's nothing but God to hold tight to. And it's, something, and it's a, a type of faith that lives with questions and wrestles with questions, but ultimately says, even if God doesn't make me invincible, I'm still going to only serve him. He is the one for me. And when you think about it, Paul was the greatest evangelist of all time, right? He started churches. He actually wrote most of the New Testament as letters to his, his churches. You would think that a guy like that would have all of his prayers answered, right? It's like it's writing a spiritual check. They're always going to be good from Paul because he's so rich in faith. But that's not the case. Paul was beaten up more than most of us combined in our lives. Like he was beaten up when he went from city to city. God didn't give him the super bubble of protection. And Paul even writes that he prayed to God and asked him, 
to take away a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what that thorn was. We can't, we can't know. Some people say it was a painful uh, medical condition. Some people guess that it was because his eyesight was going, was going bad and he was just, that was affecting his ministry and to rely so much on other people. We don't know what it is, but Paul prayed for it. He said, I prayed three times for God to take this thorn away from me. But God didn't. God didn't take that pain. God didn't take away that, that suffering. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 and 10, Paul says, each time God said to me, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And so now, now I, Paul, I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power in Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and in persecutions and in troubles that I suffer for Christ because when I am weak, then he is strong. Paul suffered and he continued to give his life to Jesus. So what? What do we do? What do we do? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. But what do we do when pain and suffering happens in our life? We, now, I have, I have older brothers, so I'm not saying I was a punching bag, but I'm not saying I wasn't. And we would, we would try to do our best wrestling moves on one another and, and, and uh, it was fantastic, all the flips that we could do. But every once in a while, you, when you tried to throw a fake punch, it turned into a real punch because you didn't quite know how far it was coming. And if you have, I see a bunch of people who have boys being like, yep, that's exactly right. So what's the first thing that happened? Like, first thing that you, that you do when you get hit is you put your hands on it, right? Like, you, you cover it up. You, it's, like, it's like we all have this magical healing power in our fingertips that as soon as we get hurt, we cover it up. We put it on the pain um, and put pressure on it, and we, and, and we, we turn inwards. And that's, that is what our natural response to pain is, is we turn inwards. And again, grieving is necessary. We need to look at those pains. We need to work through those pains and pray about them and give them to God, but at the same time, if we turn inwards and focus on our pain too much, those moments of grief can become a lifetime of grief. We can hold on to those pains and those sufferings, asking forever, God, why did you let this happen to me? And lose sight of what God is doing in our lives. Instead, instead of turning inward, my suggestion, our response to grief should be turning outward. It's in pouring our lives into other people that we can find some sort of healing, of, of moving on. There's another, another pastor, Craig. Craig Rochelle told the story of his friend Paco, which is an awesome name. Paco had diverticulitis, which is not an awesome disease. It's, it's a painful digestive disease. And uh, Paco, as he was going around, he was trying to talk with people who lived with this disease, and he just asked them, what do you do? How do you get through it? And they said, you know, our faith in Jesus has strengthened us, but we've found the most joy in serving others. And so Paco and his wife started, in the midst of their pain, pouring themselves outwards, turning outwards into others. And he said, Craig, you wouldn't believe it. See, I'm still, in, I'm still suffering but I have never felt joy like this before. My wife and I, our relationship, it's never been stronger. My family, my kids, they are experiencing the happiness of a family that they've never experienced before because we chose not to turn inward, but to turn outward in our pain. And that's why God was, br it was brilliant in creating the church because it, it shows us that we are not 
supposed to just turn inwards and do this by ourselves, but we have grief share, we have divorce care ministries, we have amazing life groups that meet because we're not in this alone. And if we were, oh, we wouldn't make it. <laughs> in our pain, in our suffering, God brings other people around us if we turn outwards. And in our pain, in our suffering, God puts us around people who need our help when we're suffering. You see, you see turning outward, it doesn't turn back the hands of time and make pain not happen. And it's not going to um, grant you, uh, God owes me a miracle card. You're, that's not going to happen when you turn outward. But it is going to give you healing and comfort and love and joy in ways that you never thought was possible after feeling so terrible. You see, when God gives us the keys to drive, there are lots of accidents, and I've caused my fair share, um, and I'm sure you have too. In fact, we, we don't allow perfect people in this church anymore, just Jesus. Everybody else has to have some sin in their life that they're working through. And so we would be hard-pressed, if held up to God's standards, we'd be hard-pressed to call ourselves perfect people, that's impossible. It'd be hard to say we're great people. A lot of times it's hard to even say that we're good people, right? If we really examine our lives, we say, I'm a bad person saved by the grace of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Craig talked about how God doesn't just reach down, reach to the utmost, he reached to the guttermost. You guys remember that? He talked about we all have our own, our own garbage. And it's at these moments when we say, you know what, why does, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I'm not as concerned with that as I am so thankful that God allows good things to happen to bad people like me. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who is loving, who cares for bad people like me, and serve a God who is not, doesn't just give up on us and make the earth move so we fall, but we serve a God who is willing to take us and mold us like a creator with clay perfecting us little by little so that we be, begin to look more and more like him. If he could take a, a, a murderer like Paul and turn him into a church planner, just imagine what he could do with you. Just imagine what he could do with Crossroads Church. God know, knew the plans he had for Paul. God knew the plans he had for the tribe of Judah. God knows the plans he has for Crossroads Church, and God knows the plans he has for you, and his plans not to harm you not, might not be plans to make you comfortable. Plans to bring you hope, maybe not physical healing, not yet anyways. That's safe for his plan for the future. So you might experience healing in your life, and we praise God for big stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like that. You might have a moment like that where a Damascus road where God intervened and turned your life around, but a lot of us, we don't have those moments. We have Stephen moments where we feel like we're doing the best thing that we can do and we get hit with a rock. But in those moments, we know that God hears us, that God is with, with us, and God loves us and we are thankful that God lets good things happen to bad people like me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have searched our hearts. You know all the things 
that we struggle with. You know the things that we've struggled with from day one, and you know the, string, the things that we've struggled with since last year, last month, last week. We are imperfect beings that you are molding and shaping. Oh, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for you. Thank you that good things can happen to people who struggle like we do. Thank you that you don't act with the same kind of justice that we want to see enacted on other people. That you give us grace and that you give us mercy and that you've given us the ability to forgive. Help us to forgive. Help us to turn outward and serve others in your name so that we can be examples of you in this world. Help us to usher in your kingdom one hand at a time. We love you, God. We love you, God. We love you, God. Amen.